Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you all are, are, are doing well this morning. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue in our second message, part two of the sermon series on the diaconate. Um, and this series, as I told you last week, will be the catalyst of our church in installing deacons into the office of deacon. If you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back. It's on the website and listen to it. It would say it's a good preface to this and will help make sense to a lot of what we are talking about today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you now to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6, to the book of Acts chapter 6, and we'll begin reading there in a few minutes. And just recapping just a little bit of what we discussed last week, why do we, as of right now, not have deacons? Well, in, in length, I answered that question last week, but in, in, in short and simple, as a new church plant, now only seven years old, but back then when we started in our infancy, the priority of ours was the teaching and preaching of the Word of God and what is the church and also the establishment of the plurality of elders. We needed a plurality of elders and we needed the congregation, the church members, to understand what a plurality of elders is. So putting into place biblical elders was, was the first thing that we needed to do. And also we see the biblical pattern of that. In Titus, Paul encourages Timothy to, or Titus, excuse me, to put into place elders in every church, right? So this was an absolute necessity of ours. But now, as we've seen in the last three years, the, the, the growth of our, of our church and the church membership we see the blessings of, of, that, of that growth. Uh, also comes um, the needs as a congregation to build the biblical structures around that, uh, around that growth. And so in God's providence, we have come now in this time at Sovereign Grace Church where we need, hear my words, we need biblically qualified men to serve in the office of deacon. We want to be biblical. We talked about this last week. We want to be biblical in all things as the church. The Bible is our sole authority and our guidance in all things, and it is completely sufficient in teaching us that as a church, we should do all things in decent, complete order as the Bible has instructed us. We talked about that from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, last week. I said last week, and I'll say it again, that it is imperative that in all things, we as the church submit to God in all things. And now in particular, as we discuss the diaconate, the office of deacon, from God's word, we all submit ourselves under its authority. Even if it challenges my view, or if it challenges your view on the deacons or elders, whatever it may be, that is okay. We submit ourselves under the authority of God's word. Our views become shaped by God's word. As we all know, the Bible is constantly shaping us, isn't it? It's constantly conforming us and correcting us and moving us in the ways it, as, as it does. And corporately, it is shaping us together. Now, we asked the question last week, 
We started off by asking the question, who serves the church? And we answered this question in two ways last week, and we'll answer the third way today. And the first answer to that question is the church, meaning the members. Members deacon the church. Members serve the church, right? So I'm using the, the verb form of, of deacon to mean to serve or to administer or to, or to give. The noun meaning of the word deacon is also servant. It's translated often as servant or master or attendant or also uh, uh, the proper noun would be capital D if you want to say that deacon, right? So we are called as a church, not all to be capital D proper noun deacons, but we are called as church members to deacon the verb one another because our motive is not uh, uh, of the boasting in the building up of ourselves in front of one another and making ourselves look good, but rather our serving one another is to be because of the grace that we all have received, right? The glorious salvation that has been given to us that, if I may use, the sovereign grace of God compels us to not be the greatest, to not be the one who's always reclining at the table, but to be the one that deacons one another. And if we build the office of deacon upon the foundation that as a church, as, a, as membership, the ethos of our church, one of those is a, as members serving one another, then deacons will have an army of members at their disposal to eagerly complete any task Whatever may come, whatever need, whatever challenge may come that comes their way so that all the church would continue to do the work of the ministry, not just elders, not just deacons, but the whole church completely. And praise God, as I told you all last week, that I believe that on many levels we've experienced the fruit and the blessings of a church that consistently and often deacons one another and as a recipient of such deaconing i rejoice in the good the goodness of god in that and i hope that you do too the second answer to that question that we talked about last week of who serves the church is this is that the elders serve the church the elders are also also deacon the church, right? And so we talked a little about this in the beginning, right? That a biblical plurality of elders shepherd the flock. They care, they guide, they feed, they are nurturing, they are exercising oversight, they lead the church. They are not swayed by man, nor are they self-serving for their own gain, but they are guided by God's word alone. Elders serve. They deacon the church with an eagerness and with joy under the authority of the good shepherd who is the word of God. Elders do this primarily, as we know, in the role of teaching, through ministering, through instructing and preaching. They're overseeing the direction and guidance of the church and equipping the church once again to do the work of of the ministry with the word of God that the church would look and behold and delight in Jesus Christ. Elders best deacon, I said this last week, that elders best deacon the church when elders, pastor, and overseers of the church, they are praying, they are teaching, 
their, in their best deaconing the church when those things are their priority and their primary role. And so that brings us to the third part of this question, the third answer to this, to this question, who serves the church? And so I know there's no mystery here. I know you're not on the edge of your seat going, man, who is this? Who are they going to say? Gonna say? If you are, you're going to have to hold on just for a minute because I'm going to answer the question with an illustration. Going out to dinner or going out to a restaurant, generally speaking, is something that is to be enjoyed, right? We go out to, to, be in, to enjoy. So, and as a consumer, we go to a restaurant or particular restaurants, we pick certain restaurants because we are willing to pay for the convenience of eating out, right? The convenience of, of getting some rest, uh, not having to prepare a meal at home or or clean up afterwards, or whatever it may be. Maybe it's there to, to enjoy the food. Maybe it's some restaurants that have a, a really good view. If you've ever been to a restaurant with a great view, you understand. Maybe it's just the ambiance of the, the restaurant. It's just a, a nice, calm, quiet, restful place. We go out to restaurants for quality time, quality time with, with, with one another. Often when I get to meet with you all individually, it's over a meal or at least a cup of coffee. And the joy of sharing a meal together, as we've spoken num numerous times, is a, is a wonderful thing. It is a delightful thing. It's a powerful thing. But when you have at a restaurant, but when you're at a restaurant having a good waiter or waitress is what either kind of makes or breaks the enjoyment of a restaurant, doesn't it? You can have the best food ever, but if, you're if, you're, if your waiter or waitress is terrible, you probably will never go back. But if, if a waiter enjoys what they are doing, I mean, they enjoy serving tables, they're, they're eager to serve you, they're available. How about that? Like, available. They're there, like, you can, you can call upon, you can ask them to give you what you want or what you, or what you need when do you need it, but also they find this balance where they're not too intrusive. Again, the, the experience of eating out at a restaurant can be quite enjoyable. Even if the food is mediocre, it would, still can be an enjoyable thing. A servant can make, a server can make a really big difference on the quality of the meal. Again, on the downside. The downside, they can also make things worse. On the downside also is that when you go to a restaurant, you often do not get to pick your server, do you? The host or hostess will, will seat you and you will get the server who is in that particular part of the, of the restaurant. And so oftentimes it's like rolling the dice. You might get a wonderful waiter or you might not. They, they might not know the menu well. They may be having a bad day. It may be a waiter who has really bad people skills or has just had a really bad experience from another table or a manager just chewed them out. Our family sat down at a table one time at a restaurant in St. Augustine and the wait waitress came to our table, took all of our, order, our, our, our drink orders and two minutes later she quit publicly and made a big scene. Needless to say, we kind of just walked, got up and walked out. <laughs> 
because there's like, well, I guess there's not a server anymore. Um, you never know what you're going to get. In the church, there's one aspect that is sort of like eating at a restaurant, and that is the local church has table servants. The church has what we call deacons. The joy, the peace, the unity, and the fruitfulness of the local church, hear me on this, depends on this group of men being faithful table servants who are present and who are eager to serve the body of Christ. And I want to show you that from God's Word. So let's look to Acts chapter 6 now, as you've already turned, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned all the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. If someone was to come up to you and ask you, hypothetically, I'm sure this has never happened, and they may ask you, what is the scriptural evidence of your church being organized with elders and deacons? What would you say to them? They're asking for scriptural evidence. So where would you take them in the Bible? And as great as Acts chapter 6 is, it is an amazing passage. We're going to unpack it today. But that is not the scriptural evidence that you should go. Where you would want to go is to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, Paul and Timothy, servants, which, by the way, is not the word for deacon, diakonos, but it actually is the word slave. Some of y'all's translations may actually say slave or bond slave. That's doulos. Servants, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, diakonos. The well-ordered church, as Paul conceives of here, is a church that is made up of the redeemed, 
and he calls them saints. Which means that as the church, as the people of God, members of the body of Christ, we are set apart by Christ. The church is real people who have been transformed, and if you look here, they are a real people in a real place called the city of Philippi. Just like we are a real people transformed by a real grace in a real place called Statesboro. And this real church, in a real place, exists in space and time. We also see that the church has two distinct recognizable groups. The offices, as we call them. The offices in the church that serve the church. And they are called overseers and deacons. And there's great evidence right there. Right, that these two offices exist. There's your, your scriptural evidence, but you can also go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 13 through 15, where in 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to, to uh, this young pastor, Timothy, these directives on how to order the church. And there in chapter 3, he lists the qualifications for elders and then deacons. There at the end, verse 13, he says, for those who serve well as deacons, Diakonos gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So here is the logical, obvious pattern in the church of the offices. Here is your scriptural evidence of the offices of the church, in particular as we are talking of the diaconate, the deacons. But what about the origin? What about the origin of the diaconate or the deacons? Where did they come from? Well, first, before we look at historically where the deacons come from, I want to take you theologically where the deacons come from. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, listen to this, until we all obtain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To what end? To mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And why? So that you are no longer children, you are no longer children who are tossed to and fro by the, by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in all deceitful schemes. So what has God given the church? To accomplish these ends in a people that is gathered at a place that has been redeemed by Christ. What is he given? He has given the offices listed through the ministry of the word of God. He's given us shepherds and, 
and teachers that are given by God to equip the church. He has not left Christians to their own devices and to their own schemes to pick and choose whatever they want from the scriptures, to not be plugged into a body of the cross of Christ. But he has called and chosen us that we would gather together and under this particular organization of these offices listed. He is building all of, us, all of us up to mature manhood, that we would measure to the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a glorious promise. Some of us do not feel that way often, do we? We often feel so much more of as a failure than we do as fullness. And I get it. I'm with you. That this is the promise. This is the work of God. This is the long game that God is building and doing in our lives. To bring about the measure of Christ, the mature manhood, that we may be strong and grounded and deeply rooted. Now that's not the purpose of this sermon, Ephesians 4, but, or, but that could preach. He's not left us to our own. And I know that this passage does not mention deacons. But the main offices in the church are there. And by extension, theologically speaking, is that we see the Lord has given us elders, and under them the, the, is given for the physical well-being of the church, he has given deacons for our good to serve us as Christ serves us. And just like in Ephesians 5, there's this grand passage in Ephesians 5 where it, 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 it illustrates the gospel in the covenant of marriage. And it's telling the husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So theologically speaking, how is Christ loving the church? He's transforming them. He's renewing them. He's redeeming them. He's giving them faith to believe. He's saving them. He's bringing them into the, into the body of Christ. Also, Ephesians 5, it says that he, he gave himself up for her. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her with the washing of the word of God. He prepares her to be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle to be holy and without blemish. It tells us also that, that Jesus nourishes us. He nourishes us and he cherishes us because, again, in that glorious illustration of marriage, the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. And he's making you lovely and he nourishes you and he cherishes you and he wants the best for you. And so what is he doing? In the pattern theologically, what Christ has done through the work of the gospel as we see in Ephesians 5 is this, is that through the life of the church and through the ministry of the word of God and the serving of deacons, Christ is nurturing you. Oh, I love theology. 
look how much it just explodes our minds to what Christ is doing. Well, that would have been bad. That's the humility. So theologically, we see the, the origin of the diaconate, but historically, we've just read it in Acts chapter 6. And I love how the Bible not only gives us the theology of this, but the Bible also shows us historically the wisdom of God in giving us deacons. And he uses this particular rise of a potentially terrible situation. And so this now, I'm already speaking of Acts chapter 6. The wisdom of God to show us as the church through a particularly, potentially devastating, nasty situation the glory and benefit of the nurturing and cherishing of Christ to the body of Christ, he has given deacons. The proper noun deacon is not used in the text, as we read. Its verb usage is in verse 2. Its noun usage is used in verse 4, ministry, that's denakneo. But logically, again, this passage has to refer to the formation of the office of deacon that we will see clearly, clearer later in the epistles. This is the proto-event that God uses to give the church the office of deacon. And in the book of Acts, we see his, the, the historical accounting of the work of God. It's not about man. It's about God. And it's about God taking his word, the gospel, by the Holy Spirit through inspired men, a work of God of sovereign grace and planting churches throughout the known world. In chapter 1, we see the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ as he commissions, as the resurrected Christ, he commissions his disciples and he ascended into heaven and he promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and he fills all of those who have received the message by faith and were baptized. And that day, Peter preached and proclaimed the message. And by faith, 3,000 were added to their number. Instantly, the church was growing. And from there, the church became marked by, by seven outward works of the gospel. We see that from Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. They were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. They were devoted to fellowship, to eating together, praying together. They found their identity in what? In the union that they have with each other in Christ. They sold their possessions. They gave their money to the church so that everyone's needs were being met. They were very practically deaconing one another. That not one person who would come to the church in First Baptist Jerusalem would have such a need that would hinder them from the joy of experiencing the gospel of Christ. Do you get that? That's why they were given, and giving, and giving. They attended temple together. And as the result of their devotion was God's blessings upon them, 
It says that the Lord added to their number, Acts 4, 34. It also gives us the summation of what I was just saying, that it says that there was not a needy person among them. Think about that with thousands of people, that there was not one who was needy. And the church at this point, we see, is doing good. Uh, amazing. Something we've been all, in a lot of ways, we've been, we would want to be a part of. And even as the text continues, we see throughout there is sprinkled in, actually the major portions of the passage is how then they begin to experience persecution. They experienced persecution from, from without, with outside the church. The apostles were arrested. They were, they were beaten. And yet the church is still doing good and growing and strong. There was moral corruption even within the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And yet in both instances failed to destroy this young infant church. And then now in chapter 6, we see something new. A nasty situation that was brewing. And in a particular thing that the apostles had not faced yet. And let me tell you that underneath this particular symptom, this particular nasty situation is this. Is that although the, accusation, the accusations are real, underneath it the real problem was the distraction of busyness. The distraction of busyness. You see, with all the blessing and with all the growth of the preaching of, of the Word of God, a real problem began to arise. It wasn't persecution. <laughs> That's nothing. A real problem began to arise. You see, the apostles, the apostles at that time, as we see, they are handling pretty much everything in the church, this new church as it began to be organized. In particular, in the physical things, they were handling all the money and all the giving and the, the distribution of, of all the gifts so that everyone continued to have no need. And they were also doing all the teaching and the preaching. And as we know, with that amount of money or that many people, there were great sums of money. Acts 2, 35-34 tells us that all of this was laid at the feet of the apostles. Now, one would say that that's a good problem to have. This is a good problem to have. There are good problems, and let me tell you, there are bad problems to have. This is a good problem to have. But nevertheless, it was becoming a bigger problem. And eventually, it manifests itself in what we see in chapter 6, where a serious accusation, a serious complaint arose in the church. And that is this group called the Hellenists, which are actually uh, Greek-speaking Jews. So these are Jewish people by their by their uh, race and nationality, that they are Jews, but they were not from Judea. They were from the Greek-speaking uh, uh, parts of the world, yet moved back to Judea and lived in Jerusalem. A complaint began, arose, of this particular group of the church that spoke mainly Greek. And they made a complaint against the Hebrews. And as you can imagine, those were Jews as well, that became Christians, that spoke Aramaic, and they were from Judea, right? So two distinct, different cultures, same somewhat historical religion, belief and identity in Christ, yet still two distinct people. And the complaint against them was that their, their widows 
were being neglected in the daily distribution. You see that in number one. So there, verse one, that there is a particular ministry to these widows that their needs would be met. And this particular group were saying, hey, we're seeing something lacking here. And this is a serious charge on many levels because not only did the distribution look unequal, but here's the real problem. The distribution didn't, uh, uh, didn't look random meaning to the Hellenists, their widows looked like they were being treated, maybe because they're Hellenists and they're not Hebrew. That can cause a massive problem in the church, can it? So you see the particular issue here, right? It could be stemmed from many different things. It could have been a big mix-up. It could have been some kind of complication made with language. And sometimes if we don't understand one another, even if we speak the same language, sometimes we get the feel that we're being left out. If we're someone on the outside and we begin to believe for some reason or not, we can understand the potential of this as well as what it is doing to destroy the joy and the redemption in the church and bring about needless division in the church. But remember what I told you. So this is the symptoms. These are the problems. Yet underneath the problem was the apostles. How the apostles are getting, becoming, they're becoming distracted with a busyness in such a way that they could not keep up with the growing needs of the church. The Lord had given plenty of resources, hasn't, hasn't, uh, didn't he? But they physically, as apostles, they could not keep up with them so much time and attention, and now their own limitations, in some sense, are being exposed. The apostles, I'm sure recognizing this, recognizing the severity of the situation. I'm sure before they addressed it, as we see the text just kind of walk right through it, I'm sure these men, these 12, got together and they prayed. And they asked the Lord, this is what elders do, they asked the Lord for, for wisdom. And what did they ask? They asked the Lord to give them wisdom on how to fix or to solve this problem. And wisely, the Lord led them in the appointment of qualified men to deacon the body of Christ. And so from this passage, I want to share with you, in answering the question, who serves the church, I want to share with you five purposes of a deacon. The five purposes of a deacon. First, Deacons, goes back to our original illustration, deacons serve tables. If you look at verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. A few things that this verse makes very clear and very helpful for us. It says, First, the apostles gathered the multitude together before, or excuse me, they gathered the multitude together and then tell them the plan. So when they gather the people together, they already had a plan. They didn't gather the church and say, so what do you want to do about it? They had a plan. And they, because they had prayed through wisdom and asking, and they exercised oversight with that plan. They exercised leadership. That's shepherding the church. Second, we see how this plan also incorporated the whole body, especially, as we will see in the decision-making process, 
of who would serve the church. And why would they incorporate the rest of the body? I mean, they're apostles after all. Don't you think they could have picked the seven guys? Sure they could have. But they also recognize that the church, the church and its members, they are saved. That they have the Holy Spirit that is indwelt within them. And that as church members, they are qualified in passing judgment on these matters. We are all invested in the outcome of any of these situations. Because even though the problem in Acts 6 we see is only dealing with one group in the church, the solution would take the whole congregation, wouldn't it? When the one part of the body hurts, listen to me, when one part of the body hurts, then the whole body will suffer. Many members, one body. And also the congregation has this authority given to them, right? The keys of the kingdom, the affirming, the remove, the affirming or removal of elders or deacons or church members. In a sense, as the church, you have an emergency break in these particular matters. The elders have the steering wheel, but rarely used is the emergency break, but the emergency break is there for good reason. And now back to deacons serving tables. This is the beginning of the wise plan by the apostles starts out with, it is not good that they should give up the preaching, the word, to serve tables. Now, they are not saying that serving tables is beneath them. Clearly, they have been doing it. They have been serving the body for these last six chapters. Serving tables is not beneath them. They are not saying that we are too good to serve tables. What they are saying is that we should serve you the word of God. And as I said earlier, to take anything from that, to do anything that would distract us from it, any other busyness, as good as it may be, that would distract them from that role would not be healthy for the church. It would be unhealthy for the church, i.e. the situation of Acts chapter 6. The elders, best deacon the church, when they elder, when they pastor, when they oversee the church, as I said earlier, in prayer, in teaching, in leading the direction of the church. But the word of God is clear here, that, that God has a concern, the concern of the busyness and the priority of his word, but still we see the concern of God in the, the necessity of serving tables. I.e., we continue to see throughout God's word, God's concern for the poor and the needy. And let me give you a good definition of the poor and needy. I think that applies to us in the church. I found this to be so helpful to me when we understand those words poor and needy. It's not just financial needs. It could be anything. But it is, it, it is, listen, it is anyone who is burdened with all sorts of trials and afflictions, but who seek their help from the Lord. You hear that? There's a massive distinction that if someone shows up here and they begin asking you for stuff, instead of them coming and asking of the Lord, and we realize that they are in need and we can meet that need. Huge difference. That's the poor need. That's the, the concern that we see often, right, throughout the Bible. Jesus told us in John 12, verse 8, that the poor you will always have what? With you. 
God's concern. Why is he telling us that? He's telling us not only in the importance of the, uh, of, the, of the gift that was being given to Jesus at that moment, the sacrifice, the offering that was given to Jesus, but also telling us that the poor will always be there. We always will have them that we could minister to. James 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? The heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Has God not chosen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27-29. Has God not chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So then, deacons are given to us by God in the church to serve the tables of those needs in the body of Christ. Their calling is to meet and to facilitate the physical needs of the church, the serving of the tables. In a sense, you can look at the relationship between elders and deacons, and you can see that the derived authority of deacons comes from the elders because the elders are delegating certain facets of their serving to this other biblical office, the serving of tables. And we call that office deacons. The physical matters of the church, the things again, as I said again, the things that would otherwise hinder the joy of the gospel in those who are in need or, or to meet any other general needs of the church. That is their calling. To serve tables, brothers and sisters, I know to you and to this world sounds demeaning, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound demeaning? It, it, it sounds like the low-level job, Right? And that kind of seems like the job that we, we don't really want, but, but that is not the view here, is it? The view here is seven good men of repute to serve tables. It's not beneath the apostles, it's not beneath the apostles or the, the deacons. And the office of deacon then is ordained by God for, listen, for the focused care of the physical and financial needs of the church that, as I said before, theologically is mimicking the nurturing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll flesh that out more later, but we need to move to the next one. Second, deacons are to be qualified. We're not going to spend too much time here because next week's sermon will be on the qualifications of, of deacons. But from Acts chapter 6, according to the plan of the wisdom of God, deacons are to be qualified. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, here's part of the plan. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So first let me say that the number seven is somewhat arbitrary. It's the, the number that they chose, right? And I think that that looks different in, in every church according to the needs of, of the church. And yet, however, they pick these men, and the most important thing we see about these men is that they are qualified, that they are qualified men. And these three qualities are, are, are given and I think drawn out later in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
And the first of those qualities here in Acts chapter 6 is that they are to be men of good repute, meaning they are to have a good character. They are to be respectable. They are known for a conduct that resembles their Savior, Jesus Christ. They are to be full of the Spirit, not just indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we see something significant, that they are full of the Holy Spirit. And I think what this means is not that they have some special second blessing like some weirdo would tell you, but that they are full of the Holy Spirit, meaning they are a person who is known for submitting their lives to the Spirit's guidance. And this charge, the charge for deacons, listen to me here, the charge of deacons to serve tables, brothers and sisters, is not merely a physical work. Do not be be deceived. The work of the deacons is foremost a spiritual work to the body of Christ. Helping a widow who is in need is a spiritual work. Praying for a brother who is in a hospital bed is a spiritual work. Maintaining the facilities of the church is a spiritual work. Helping a single mother pay her bills and educate her to know how to do those things is a spiritual work. Care and Wisdom over the church's finances is a spiritual work. Making sure that the ordinances are prepared and put in order for the, for the church is a spiritual work. Making sure that the doors are locked in the property is a spiritual work. And on and on we could go. Deacons are to be full of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because their work is a spiritual work. And deacons are also to be full of wisdom, meaning having the ability to solve problems, physical problems that come up, issues that come up, that they have discernment. They are men not only that can get things done, but that they can discernibly think through a physical problem and correct the issue. They have insight. They have sound judgment. They have practiced sound judgment in the past. They know how to interact with people in a loving, humbling kind of way, speaking the truth in love. Deacons are to be wise. And I think that is what is clear and what will be made more clear next week, brothers and sisters, from just these three qualities from Acts chapter 6 is that the quality of a deacon is really no lesser than an elder. They're not the guy who's trying to be an elder and still trying to get everything straight so he can become one. He's virtually the quality of an elder in many ways. A man of great quality who is particularly called and then appointed by the church because of their calling and giftedness of being full of the Spirit, of good repute, and wise. Third, deacons must prioritize the ministry of the Word of God. You look at verse 4. The apostles say this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. 
the whole purpose of the appointment of deacons was not just to meet the felt needs or just to serve tables, was it? It was to address the underlying issue of the distraction and the busyness. Their purpose was to make sure that the ministry of the Word of God was not neglected. The office of deacon is not a competing ministry with the ministry of God's Word. We do not elevate it as being right next to, that this is a church that not only preaches the Word, but we also do all of these things, and we do all this serving, and it's just as equal. It is not. The priority of the deacon is to prioritize and to uphold the ministry of the Word of God to the church of God. A deacon asks, what can I do to lighten the physical burdens of this church so that the elders would be free to preach the Word of God? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that it's always wrong to put serving tables ahead of the Word of God because that's like putting man before God. And isn't that the main issue with our world? Isn't that sin itself in its essence? A failure to honor God. And for us as a church, if we prioritize just the felt needs of everybody, the physical needs of everybody, that would be a wrongful evaluation of not only of God himself, but a completely wrong evaluation of man. Because, listen, you could give man, we could give man everything that they ever could want, everything that they ever could need, and what would we still have? We would still have nothing. In fact, things would be far worse because Jesus says, what can man have if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Isn't it foolish to elevate the temporal over the eternal? Yes, we care for the temporal. This is why we're installing deacons. We care for the temporal. We care for your suffering. We care for your need. But ultimately, we care for your spiritual need. We care more for your eternal suffering than we do anything else. So we prioritize the preaching of God's word. So then the deacon then not only sets the elder free to be single-minded in their work of shepherding and overseeing, but also through the serving of the church. They are meeting the needs of the church. And they will not elevate anything that would hinder the joy that someone can have in their union in the body of Christ. Fourth, deacons are to be shock absorbers. It's not my illustration, it's borrowed. And as you may know, a shock absorber on a vehicle, a car, absorbs, it's between the axle, your wheel and the axle, it's between the axle and the frame of your vehicle, and it absorbs the blows of a bump of a rough road that makes a smoother ride. And the office of deacon has the role in the church to elevate the tensions in the church. They are to, to be shock-absorbing, absorbing the shocks that may come to the church. Now, I have to say that, that whenever there's tensions, when there's problems, this is the role of deacon. 
And we certainly see this in Acts chapter 6. You're going to see that in verse 5. But doesn't that fly in the face in the amount of controversy surrounding deacons? It's like it's exactly what Satan wanted to do. Take this gloriously beautiful office that mimics the nurturing and care of Christ and turn it into a demonic position to hurt people. I guess, uh, what's that school in North Carolina? The Demon Deacons. Maybe they had it right in some ways. And I pray you don't know what I'm talking about. But Acts chapter 6, there was this major problem, wasn't there? This major potential problem, massive things that is about to spill. The kind of stuff that is destroying the church today, by the way. This racial divide garbage. Where good deacons should be stepping in and absorbing the blow. They're not. They're propagating it. They're propagating it. And here, this potential problem, these deacons are, are put in place to absorb the tension and the shock. Verse 5, and what they, that's the apostles, said pleased the whole gathering. It pleased them. It pleased the whole church. And they, this is the church, what did the church do? They chose. And here they choose, they choose these, these seven men of these qualities. And they're specifically chosen by these, these, this congregation who met all these qualifications, and what did this plan do, this office do? It pleased the church. It absorbed the shock, the tension, the potential nasty disaster that they were on the precipice of standing on. And so here, these shock absorbers, these deacons who are going to serve tables, they're not running their own ministries apart from the church or apart from the oversights of the elders, but rather they are serving to facilitate the ministries of the church along with the congregation under the oversight of the elders to absorb shocks that may come in the church. And so what is obvious, as I was yelling about just a few minutes ago, what's obvious is that deacons do not create shock. They do not create tension. Your shocks are blown in your car if it's making you bounce even more. A deacon does not create shock. They do not create tension. They heal tension. They heal division. They do not pour gas on the flames of the vision. They bring unity. And that unity is under the word of God to support the leaders and the elders of the church, to support, as we see here in Acts chapter 6, to support the preaching of the word of God by the apostles. The deacons are shock absorbers. And lastly, deacons are to be set apart. They are appointed and set apart. So yes, I, gave, I hope clearly last week this, this, this explanation that we are to be deaconing one another. And so maybe the question comes up, well, why can't we just continue to deacon one another? I think that's a good question. We, hopefully I answered it simply. We've outgrown it, blah, blah, blah. We already talked a little bit about it. That is a good question. But God has given us this office to take qualified men set apart, to set them apart, and to appoint them in this office. Verse 3. We see in verse 3, it says, at whom we will appoint to this duty. But namely in verse 6, it says, these 
they, the church, right? So they, the church, set before the apostles. They said, all right, here's the seven guys, apostles. And they, the apostles, what did they do? They prayed and they laid hands on them. The church appointed and chose these men to be set apart, to deacon them. And that setting apart, again, as we saw earlier, pleased the church. And that setting apart was the apostles praying for them. And the apostles laying hands on them. We call this ordination. And the ordination here took place just like we see in so many other examples in the Bible. To where people are set apart for the special offices. Like in Acts 13 verse 3. When the apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent out. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 when Paul reminds Timothy of his ordination and how the hands were laid upon him. In 2 Timothy verse 1, chapter 6, he, tell, he reminds him of the, that same experience of being set apart for the preaching of God's word. And that tells us that on the same level in many ways, that the deacon ordination, the setting apart, the appointing is just as important and is just as necessary to the setting apart of elders. Ordination is certainly a formal event. But in it, in the ordination, in the laying of hands, in the setting apart, the congregation formally is not just formally gathered and we're publicly gathered, but we are saying that God has given this man to us to serve us. That God has given this man to serve the body of Christ as a gift and as a blessing to the body of Christ, as Christ nurtures and cherishes the body of Christ. In the appointment, in the ordination of deacons, it is a sign to us of humility, isn't it? That God has provided. That God has raised up among us these men. And yet it is also a sign of respect and honor. Because we are setting apart those who serve us. And lastly, it is also a sign of thankfulness. It's a sign of thankfulness that the Lord, we are giving thanks to the Lord for his provision to us. Because in these men, we know we will experience his love and his care and his nurturing. And that's why we set apart this man or these men for his church. The role of deacon in the life of this church, brothers and sisters, is to serve tables. They are to be qualified. They are to prioritize above all the ministry of the word of God. They are to act as shock absorbers. They are to be appointed and set apart. Deacons serve the church for the joy of the church, and for the glory of God. And I say that because as we get to verse 7, as we close, we see in that the exponential blessing of God on his church. And I believe because they acted in the wisdom of God in the right theology that God had given them. And it says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
And a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. The direct result of the church's continued joy and peace through the priority of God's word as central to the church. The Lord lavished and poured out his blessings on them. We, we may take, we may read past that the word of God and continue to decrease and the number of disciples greatly multiplied in because we've heard that before. We've seen that before in other texts. I read them a little bit earlier, but did you catch that last one? That even to the point of God's blessings that he lavished upon them, that those who actively worked to murder the Son of God, the ones who were pursuing the arrest of the apostles in their imprisonment, what does God do? It's almost like saying, good job, church. Now let me show you what I can do. I mean, I'm going to take the people that hated my son and I'm going to make them just fall in love with them and give them faith to believe. Watch what I can do, God says. Watch what I can do, what I do, through an obedient, faithful church that prioritizes the preaching of God's word. And is this, not, is this not also our desire in prayer, O church, O beloved church of God? Would we not ask and desire that the Lord would increase the word of God in us? Would we not ask the Lord, do we not desire that the Lord would increase the word of God in our city? because of the ministry of this church? I do. Do we not desire that the Lord would bring salvation to so many more? And that Christ would receive all the glory. I don't even care if they come here to this church, as long as they go to a faithful church. I'm not building my kingdom, I'm building Christ's kingdom. We're building Christ's kingdom. But our desire is to see people come to know Christ by faith. And I believe that there are still people in this city that he will save. And so may he use the ministry of this church. Is that not our desire? I mean, we got plenty of room too, by the way. So Lord, if they do come here, praise God, we got some room. Is it not our heart's desire and cry, listen to me, that those who are so caught in their sin, that who blaspheme the name of God, who dishonor Jesus Christ, who love their wicked ways, do we not desire that God would give them the faith to believe as such were some of us? We do then if we do, then let's prioritize God's word. And I know it's like, now I'm at the massive and I'm going down to the, something very specific, but obedience, even in these little things of God's word, is vitally important to the life of the church. 
Brothers and sisters, do not think that a biblical diaconate made up of faithful men, men who are sitting in this room this morning, is not a part of that blessing of God. Because we believe, we believe the foundation by which we stand, we believe that as we are obedient to God's word, And as we act accordingly in wisdom to God's word, we believe what is true in God's word. And I'm going to close by reading this from Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we may ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And all of God's people say,